can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network. Every Monday at 10 a.m., you can get us on your computer or internet-connected device (laughs) at prn.fm. And as you heard in the previous announcement, you can also download our app for your smartphone and get us there. Also, back shows are there. And you can find back shows of Visionaries, our show, at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. So we're here at 10 New York time. <laughs> I guess that's Eastern time. But it could be any time wherever you are in the world. And what am I going to talk about today? So, you know, I've sort of been watching this world change around us, and I'll confess, you know, confessional. I'm 76 years old, and so I teach in an architecture school, and architects are, particularly architects in academia, are very sharp people, very up on all kinds of stuff. And most of my Younger colleagues now have PhDs. I don't, but that's now the thing. You have to have a PhD to teach. And they're up on some very exotic software, you know, um, uh, solid modeling software where you can build whole things (laughs) in the computer. Not only that, you can build something in the computer and then uh, fly through it uh, moving the point of view around, and then move it onto goggles so that you're in virtual reality. So my some of my younger colleagues can do this exotic stuff, and I'm always wondering if, um, you know, how far behind I am. In terms of awareness, I think I'm ahead of most of them. Uh, some of them who can do this high-power software stuff, I can't do that. You have to, you have to be born doing that. Uh, I um, I recall being at a meeting, uh, AIA, American Institute of Architects, in a technology meeting, and we were getting a presentation on some new cutting-edge software that had been adopted from aerospace for use by architects, software they use to make, you know, bombers and, and rockets and uh, uh, nuclear submarines. So very capable software. And I'm looking around the audience and I'm seeing these maybe 45-year-old architects looking very distressed. (laughs) Like, I'm never going to be able to learn that. And some person just out of school is going to get my job. Uh, So that's the world I live in and it's very current. But I try to keep up. And so I'm noticing how the world changes with for example, um, uh, oh, just the fact that some years ago, uh, it became more difficult for me to read a book. You know, I'd, uh, I, get, I get into bed, do I want to read a book 
or do I want to watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory? And But <clears throat> problem solved. More and more books are on audio. And for one reason or another, I spent a lot of time commuting. And uh, I'm, I'm very into uh, to, uh, audio books. So I thought I'd just begin today with running through a couple that I see right here on my screen. Then I get to other things I want to talk about today. But <clears throat> um, actually, I just finished a novel. It got a good mention somewhere. I have to go back and see where that review was called The Flight Attendant, a novel. And not too impressed. You know, what, what, what is the state of the novel today? And I'm not that into fiction, but I'll read a novel every once in a great while just to see, can people still write? <laughs> I'm worried. Uh, and But I'm more into nonfiction, so I'm reading What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics. So I'm actually into uh, quite a few books on quantum theory, and there's some I strongly recommend. Try Nick Herbert's book. Look it up. If you want to start with quantum theory, it's the most accessible and best book, even though it was written uh, 30 years ago. But what is real is interesting because it challenges what's called the Copenhagen Interpretation, uh, Niels Bohr. And there is stuff that happened in 1934. Einstein, Rosen, and Podotsky wrote what's called the EPR, after their initials, Paradox, which uh, referred to entanglement, where particles across the universe can influence each other. And since that's absurd, <coughs> Einstein thought... He had put uh, uh, the stuff, the weirdness of quantum theory to rest. It turns out it may be absurd, but it's also true. And it's only true in the 1980s we were able to do it in laboratories. And today it's, uh, that's how they make uh, quantum encryption and quantum computers using that stuff. I mean, if Einstein were only around to see, maybe he's turning in his grave. But... Um, the the whole approach, which was presented in um, really given focus in what's called Bell's Theorem by John Bell, who fortunately died young before he could see it all unfold. But um, for a long time, any physicist who worked on this interpretive approach was not going to have a career. And so it's interesting how for all the claims of objectivity and truth and all that stuff that we hear about science, you know, and um, if, it's, if it's a scientific consensus, you can be pretty sure it's about to be overturned, I think. And so there's as nasty politics in science as there is anywhere else. And this book uh, presents a lot of that. I'm right now in the middle of a book called Sharp by Michelle Dean, and it looks at a group of women, Dorothy Parker through Susan Sontag, women intellectuals. And I'm always interested in the history of intellectuals. book is not as good as it should be in terms of insights into the thinking of each of these, 
But it's a good overview, and I'm really enjoying it. I just finished a mind-blowing book, uh, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. So if you're into... uh, if you're into uh, technology scandals, <laughs> uh, this is a story of a company called Theranos. And it began as a vision of a then 19-year-old, uh, very smart woman, Elizabeth Holmes. And she um, she had a vision. She was a student at Stanford. And let's jump ahead. She eventually wanted to become the next Steve Jobs. And so (laughs) she wore, she got contact lenses and wore black turtlenecks. (laughs) She figured that would help. And her vision was something you wear on your wrist and it would do all your health readouts. You know, if you're two days away from a heart attack, if you're about to have a stroke, if your cholesterol's out of control, if there's some microorganism in your blood that shouldn't be there, it would tell you. And this eventually became uh, what she envisioned to be a device maybe the size of of an old-fashioned tower computer that sits under your desk and a pinprick, if you've ever done diabetes blood sugar testing, you prick your finger, put the drop of blood in a device and insert it into the reader. So that was her vision. And it would do a hundred different blood screenings. Basically, when I go to my doctor before I go to, you know, for a general checkup, uh, two weeks before, I'll go and get a blood test. And I don't know exactly what they do because I close my eyes. <laughs> but she sticks a needle in a in a vein in my arm. After you know, you're supposed to be fasting. Don't eat that morning. No coffee. No tea. No food. So I go early in the morning, and she takes a couple of vials of blood. She does a great job. I don't feel hardly a thing. And then my by the time I get to my doctor, he's got all my readouts. You know. Uh, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, triglycerides, blood sugar, whatever else, I don't know, whatever they look for. And he tells me, you know, it's all good. So that's good to hear. But uh, a lot of people don't do it because they really freaked out by needles, like me. (laughs) I can handle the needle if I don't look. Um, So her idea was you could do all those blood tests you could do them in seconds instead of uh, a week. You do it at home, and you do it with a pinprick worth of blood instead of several, uh, you know, thermo- uh, several vials. And she formed a company, got incredible backing. I mean, all the leading—I mean, her board included George Schultz, Henry Kissinger— you know, major Silicon Valley figures, major business figures. And she eventually had, I don't know, maybe 70 people working, um, big uh, laboratories, sexy headquarters. And they made several generations of these testing machines, and it turns out they never worked. Uh, they could basically do the thing 
but they needed more blood than a single drop. They could only do one test at a time. All the stuff she had claimed they were doing, they weren't. And she got a major drugstore chain to be a partner. They set these up in the drugstores, and she would be rushing the blood back to her laboratories to do the tests, which were terribly inaccurate. I mean, people were being given really dangerously bad information. Well, she managed to keep all this um, under wraps, kept raising money, kept hoping to be able to get it work and get it to work. And a Wall Street journalist uh, broke the story and he wrote the book. Well, uh, I love that kind of book. The Whether it's a failure or a success, a really detailed insider story of what was going on in the business. So bad blood, highly recommended. What else am I reading? Uh, this idea is brilliant by John Brockman. So I've known Jack Brock, John Brockman ever since the 60s. And he sort of has gathered around him the most interesting uh, scientists of the day. And he'll occasionally do a book, you know, summarizing their ideas. So uh, haven't started it yet, but Brockman's always recommended. And I just finished a book, Reality is Not What It Seems. What's the subtitle? I don't know. Carlo Ravelli, Italian uh, scientist working on loop quantum gravity, which is the rival to string theory. So if you're a big bang theory like I am, uh, Sheldon is uh, studying string theory. And his rival, uh, the female scientist, what's her name, who... um, uh, Leonard occasionally dates, but she's into loop quantum gravity, and they have real nasty arguments. Well, <clears throat> loop point, uh, string theory hasn't gone anywhere, and in fact, in Big Bang Theory, uh, Sheldon drops it uh, to move on to dark matter. Big controversy with the school when he does it. But um, so, this book is a good summary of loop quantum gravity. And I have uh, his latest book, The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. And he also wrote another book, which is, they're all, he's a wonderful writer. So Carlo Rovelli, all of his books are recommended if you're a physics fan. Anyway, that's what I'm current with. And, you know, just finishing, I mentioned one more. I got interested in, you know, who is... Uh, Niall Ferguson. So I got three of his books. I just finished Civilization, The West and the Rest. Not that impressed. Um, There could be more insight there. Uh, But he's kind of, um, um, what shall we say, Uh, today's superficial readers intellectual. Uh, I'll mention in a moment some of my choices, but... um, He's current. So anyway, that's what's uh, on my smartphone. So the other thing I've been up to is surfing the web. (laughs) And there's something popped up. Phenomena's been there for a while. 
But <clears throat> there was just an article a couple months ago in the New York Times um, on the intellectual dark web. What the hell is that? So it's in the New York Times. Let me dig this up here. See if I can find a date on this. Oh, I printed out a few pages of this. How many did I print out? Hang on. Printed out four. So, um, who's the journalist? Eric. Oh, Barry Weiss. May 8th. So this is just recent. Recently. What's today? How do you like that? Just a couple of days ago. Um, opinion, meeting the renegades of the intellectual dark web. So let's start with the dark web. And you might have heard the term the dark web. So um, I, I don't remember the name of it, but I read a really terrific, I love these inside story books, on a guy who came to dominate uh, drug trafficking on the Internet. <laughs> you, you go on the Internet, you order drugs, and they send them by way of the post office. <laughs> and they hope the post office doesn't open your package. So this guy, it became a huge business. Let me just take a quick look at my phone, see if I can find the name of the book. Um, finished it a while ago, so... It might not be. Why did that come up too quickly? I'll uh, I'll skip it if it doesn't come up in a sec. Hang on. Nope. Anyway, one of these uh, investigative journalists. Um, oh, here we go. American Kingpin by Nick Belton. So this guy is, um, eh, you know, he's a computer science major. He knows a little bit of, uh, he can do a little bit of computer stuff. And he's a libertarian. He believes in total freedom, no government. Um, you should be able to do whatever you want, including, you know, marijuana should be legal. All drugs should be legal. You should be able to take drugs. And you should be able to buy and sell drugs. So <clears throat> somehow he discovers the dark web, which I'll define in a moment. And he starts selling mushrooms, and he's growing mushrooms, and he's selling them. And then he, he eventually becomes an Amazon, you know, sell, or an eBay of, uh, the, uh, <laughs> of the dark web, uh, where he's not selling the stuff, but he's running the website that allows anybody to set up their own shop and sell uh, initially drugs and I think later maybe guns. Now, <clears throat> the dark web, so here's Wikipedia. The dark web is the worldwide web content that exists on dark nets, over, overlay networks that use the internet but require specific software configurations or authorization to access the dark web forms a small part of the deep web, a part of the web not indexed by web search engines. So 
The dark web is where all the really cool stuff is that you can't find through Google. Well, there are ways to find it, and there are web browsers. You don't use uh, you don't use Safari or Firefox, <clears throat> but there are browsers that can you can use that make you anonymous. So I don't know. I don't do any of this, but it's all described in this book. So you use these browsers that make you anonymous. You find these. Um, what did he call it? The Silk Road. Um, that's long out of business. He's in jail for life. <laughs> but um, you you find these online stores, and you can buy stuff. So uh, that's the dark web. So the term has been around, and I'm not into any of that, but what I am into is interesting intellectuals. So there's certain people I start to follow. And, you know, I'm mostly into techie people. So uh, Stephen Wolfram, Ray Kurzweil, uh, Peter Thiel, you know, he's, in, he's, he's a venture capitalist, one of the founders of PayPal. Um, what are they up to? What are they tweeting? Um, and they uh, give not – yeah, all of them – uh, give lectures. So you go to, I go to YouTube and I'll put in Stephen Wolfram. And then I'll go to filter and I'll say the last week or the last month because, you know, I've seen a dozen of his videos, you know, lecturing at a college or something like that. And it'll either be filmed by the college and it'll have pretty good quality or it might have been just uh, videoed by somebody in the audience on their phone, and they put it online. And you're probably not supposed to do that, but we live in a world where uh, um, great, and I'm sure Stephen Wolfram doesn't mind. So uh, I'll go follow these people in that way. Uh, you know, go to YouTube and put in. Um, Put in, you know, Ray Kurzweil uh, or Peter Diamandis. Those are the people I sort of follow. And then go to Filter last month or last week and catch their most recent lecture. You hope they'll say something new. <laughs> There's a lot of repeat. Well, somehow, about two months ago, I ran across somebody I'd never heard of who was already by then pretty big. And that was Jordan Peterson or Jordan B. Peterson. So Peterson is um, – and he kept talking about a book, 12 Rules for Life, which was not yet out or wasn't yet out on audio. So within a couple of weeks, the book came out. So I listened to the book and I listened to his lecture. Well, he's you know, one of the biggest things on the internet. There are literally – each of his videos are viewed by hundreds of thousands of people. And there are people who make an industry out of taking his videos, uh, editing them, cutting them together, maybe upping the shock value. And then, of course, they get advertisers and <laughs> making a living this way off the guy's popularity. And most of the videos have been viewed by a quarter million people or more. And Peterson himself, his uh, his web, his uh, 
uh, YouTube page has uh, over a million followers or subscribers. So, okay, so who's Peterson? So I start following this. The guy's a psychologist at University of Toronto. Okay. And a couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, he started putting his videos on he started videoing his lectures, some of them given just, you know, sitting in front of the computer and some of them videos made during class and putting them on YouTube. And they started gaining a lot of followers. So what's he all about? Well, um, he's certainly controversial and he is labeled a... Um, uh, a, a conservative. He's given nastier names, but I'll avoid that. But he's labeled a conservative. I don't. Um, uh, I don't see it that way. Um, I would say the following: draw, a, take a piece of paper, and draw a circle um, as big as you can on the piece of paper, and label that reality. What's the nature of that reality? Well, it's a material reality governed by the laws of physics. Now make a smaller circle, maybe the size of uh, a half dollar. Label that human beings. What are human beings? Well, the biological creatures uh, that, you know, share DNA with other creatures and are governed by the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. Now make within that a circle the size of uh, a dime and label that the human mind. Well, that's, you know, like a computer with neurons firing. And then make a tiny circle in that the size of a pea. And that's the uh, spiritual notions of the human mind that are a consequence of the human imagination. Now, that is a materialist view of the world and the human being, that <clears throat> the world is materialist governed by rational laws, and things like spirituality are imaginings of the human mind, but they're not, they're emergent from human nature. They're not part of fundamental reality. Now let's do it again. Take our big circle and say that that's the nature of the world. And it's not material. It's symbolic, mythological. Within that, make a smaller circle. That's human beings. And within that, make a smaller circle. That is the rational part of the human mind that imagines the world is rational. So the world is essentially a symbolic meaning system, and rationality is one human mythological system. There are many others. Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, shamanism. They're all different human imaginative systems, and rationality is one of them. Well, that's the that's sort of the tradition I come from. 
And it's a tradition you might associate with, um, oh, Oswald Spangler, Friedrich Nietzsche, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, some of whom I've spoken about, and I've done a couple shows on Campbell, so you can look them up. Or you can go uh, uh, John LaBelle Introduction to Joseph Campbell on YouTube, and you'll find uh, a lecture. Well, that's the tradition that Peterson comes from, uh, that for him, rationalism is a subset of a larger system. Now, for him, the tradition through which he approaches this spiritual symbolic system is mostly biblical. Um, he makes He's very careful not to state his belief systems, but you get a sense— that um, he he's a um, pretty broad-minded Christian. Uh, and he feels that the—doesn't mean he sees the Bible as literally true. Not at all. He sees it as a mythology, but that we have a lot to learn from that mythology and that we were arrived—we arrived at that mythology— because the sorting process of evolution found a value to it. Well, uh, I'm delighted to find someone who thinks within mythological systems and isn't a fundamentalist nut, not to put anybody down. But your choice is pretty much between Fundamentalist nuts. I won't pick on any given fundamentalism. <laughs> There's a uh, uh, colleague of mine who's uh, just retired, um, older architect, and he's Egyptian. And I used to refer to him as a fundamentalist modernist. <laughs> For him, modernism was a fundamentalist religion. You know, it was absolute. You had to believe it. And if you challenged it, he could, you, could, you, you, you could really hurt him. I mean, he could burst a blood vessel <laughs> if you challenged his, uh, his uh, modernist fundamentalism. So we all know that there are fundamentalists who are uh, into things other than modern, modern philosophy and modern architecture, as my colleague was. But to be able to think symbolically and not be a fundamentalist. That was the great contribution that um, uh, Joseph Campbell brought to us. His most famous book is Hero with a Thousand Faces, and then his most accessible book. If you're going to pick up a Campbell book, read Myths to Live By. It's adopted from lectures he gave at Cooper Union, and there are two advantages to that. One is is about 13 essays, and they're standalone. So they're short. They're about 10, 15 pages each, so that, you know, they're bite-sized reading. And Campbell was a terrific lecturer. His writing is a bit convoluted. And uh, these, because these are tri- uh, adopted, edited and adopted from lectures, they don't have that convoluted quality that his other writing has, which is not good. Uh, but I feel, you know, there's so much to be gained that it's up to us to 
pardon me, slog our way through it uh, to get the golden nuggets that are there. But in this case, there's no slogging because it doesn't have that problem. If you really want to be heavy duty, one of the, the great intellectual works of all time is Campbell's four-volume Mass of God. <coughs> um, the four volumes are Primitive Mythology, uh, Oriental Mythology, Occidental Mythology, and Creative Mythology. And they're over 700 pages each, so that's a slog. Uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to Jordan Peterson, uh, he looks at the world from this kind of mythological point of view. He's limited in that he doesn't see what Hinduism, Buddhism, shamanism have to bring, which Campbell does. He's limited to the uh, uh, Judaism and uh, Christianity and the Bible. He's, uh, he talks about Taoism, and he's read uh, Taoism. He's aware of these other traditions. He just doesn't have the depth that uh, I wish he had. Anyway, uh, so I get into Peterson, and there's a trove of his lectures. And interestingly, something happened to him. A law was passed in Canada that you have to use the preferred pronoun of a transgendered person. And if you fail to, even out of ignorance, you didn't know that that person preferred that pronoun, you could be fined and your employer, typically a university, could be fined. So Peterson said, this is ridiculous. You know, this is compelled speech. This has never happened before in the history of English common law. Uh, this is totally outside the um, Enlightenment tradition that there's compelled speech. You know, you can have forbidden speech. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Um, you know, he doesn't like that, but he understands there are circumstances in which uh, there's certain speech we want to discourage, but compelled speech. And and then, I mean, to show you how idiotic it was, you know, there are 70 different and more all the time pronouns. And I recognize this as a problem. I In my books, I just write, I say, use they. <laughs> you know, um, the artist leads a difficult life. They often have to contend with severe critics um, rather than he often has to contend, or he or she, I just say they. Uh, but there are all kinds of alternatives, and how are you supposed to know which one the person you're addressing prefers? And some idiot member of the Canadian Parliament said, well, keep track of them on your cell phone. So, <laughs> what? So uh, Peterson got into a heated argument with some transgendered advocates. Not sure if they were transgendered themselves, but they were advocate for transgendered rights. He gets to this heated discussion. Somebody videos it. It goes viral, and he becomes famous. <laughs> I got to figure out. I got to get into a fight with somebody. Uh, uh, I, an intellectual dispute and have it go viral and then my book will sell. 
Anyway, it made Peterson a major intellectual figure. So I start following his, you know, who's interviewing him and stuff like that, and it leads me to some other figures. Uh, I come across um, interviews of him by uh, Dave Rubin. Um, is an interview of him by Ben Shapiro. Who's Ben Shapiro? And I, you know, he pops up. I hear him on the radio. Now he's got a, a radio show uh, in New York. It's on ABC. It's an hour, so it's more tolerable than the other uh, three-hour radio shows. I'm saying, who are these people? Um, what are they all about? Well, let me just um, see. I printed out a couple of things here. Um, figure out who these people were. Well, all of a sudden, this uh, article pops up in the New York Times. Meet the renegades of the intellectual dark web. So remember I said dark web is sort of this secret part of the web where uh, drug dealers hang out or whatever. Uh, so intellectual dark web is... Uh, so an alliance of heretics is making an end run around the mainstream conversation. Should we be listening? So... You know, there's two conversations out there, I guess. Uh, mainstream, New York Times, New Yorker Magazine, uh, Vanity Fair, and then, you know, the intellectual magazines, New Republic, which I guess is fading away. Um, magazines in general are in trouble. But uh, academia, Simon so Academia, and then... There's uh, talk radio <laughs> and, you know, presenting a somewhat different point of view. And uh, talk radio used to, conservative talk radio, used to um, dabble in, what should we call it, um, culture, uh, talking about, you know, social changes, gay marriage, uh, whatever, and uh, but it's pretty much been taken over by politics. And so there's not much there other than, uh, you know, alternative uh, news to what uh, is in the New York Times. But and then there's another world that I hang out in, which I describe as this technology world. So occasionally when I can, I go to conferences and there's people I follow. I named them before. Ray Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, um, Stephen Wolfram. Occasionally I get to go to a conference where they're all there. Uh, and But then there's, a, there's another group that I might describe as, you know, it's interesting, might describe as traditional liberals. So there was traditional liberalism, which was, you know, freedom of thought, free speech, uh, equal rights, civil rights. And a lot of the key force, many of the key figures in that tradition eventually in the 1970s became what became called 
neoconservatives. And when asked, how did you move from liberalism to conservatism, the answer would be, I didn't move. The, you know, the rest of the liberals moved. And they became lunatic looney tunes. And so, um, and when I asked my parents uh, that kind of thing, they were New Deal liberals. They worked in the Roosevelt administration. Um, my father ran the Security Exchange Commission. And so you can't get more, you know, establishment Roosevelt liberal than that. And eventually it was, uh, they, you know, didn't see themselves in harmony with the um, what became the dominant liberal positions. So there's a group of uh, a group that will um, of people that hold kind of uh, materialist scientific positions that uh, you know they're they're liberal, they're scientific, they're open to freedom of thought, they're open to exploration. But when it comes to certain issues like the biological influences on human behavior, they say, well, there's a body of science here. Well, the, the, the new liberal tradition is um, we don't go by the body of science. We go by, um, I don't know if I should say this on the radio, but I'll describe something that is very telling. Um, when in discussing quite a few years ago, is gayness, homosexuality, caused by nature or nurture? Is one gay because of one's biology, one's born that way? Or does one become gay due to environmental how you're brought up, social influences. I have an answer for myself. I won't go into it because it's not a topic I want to discuss right now. But in posing that question to a gay colleague, I got the following answer. We will decide which approach suits our politics, and we will then force the scientists to, to adopt that answer. So that's pretty much how science is approached today. Uh, we decide what we want to believe politically. We make a political uh, determination. And then we tell the scientists, this is what you have to find. And there are a lot of scientists who are delighted with that. That's, they, that's what they think is the truth anyway. Uh, that's where the grants are. That's where the money is. That's how they get patted on the back. That's how they get um, jobs, academic appointments, tenure, publications, and grants. So, great. But occasionally, there's a scientist who has the bad fortune of their work shows something contrary. And, I mean, what would you expect? Uh, go back 50 years, 100 years, 
150 years, 200 years. And at each of those time periods, write down the established scientific beliefs. And within 50 years, every one of them become contradicted. Why should the established scientific beliefs of today be any different? I just described uh, before we got into this topic, I'm uh, reading or listening to a book. Let me just find it again. Uh, Where are we? Uh, What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for... The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics. And what it's mainly about is in the 1920s, uh, led by Niels Bohr and Heisenberg, was arrived at what's called the Copenhagen, uh, what? The Copenhagen uh, interpretation. This is what is going on. This is what it means. This is what happens. Because there's a lot of mysterious stuff. What the hell are those electrons doing while we're not looking at them? And the Copenhagen Convention has, they don't exist when we're not looking at them. It isn't that they exist, but we don't know what they're doing. They don't exist. And you can show that they don't exist. Well, what does that mean? How they do that? How they go from not existing to existing? Um, you're not allowed to talk about that. There's a famous dictum. Uh, the Europeans, most of the European uh, quantum theorists had strong backgrounds in philosophy and they would debate these issues. But when the scientific world moved to the United States after World War II and uh, quantum theory was taken up in American universities, they didn't want to, you know, the science departments, American universities, didn't want to talk about any philosophy stuff. And so there's a famous phrase, shut up and calculate. <laughs> you know, you speculate about what's going on. What's the implication of this for the nature of reality? You will not get an academic appointment. Students were told very strongly, don't mess around with this. Well, um, Today, we're looking at it again. Uh, Well, it's totally different from where it was uh, in the 1940s, 1920s to 1940s. So in the 1960s, a group of scientists challenged the Copenhagen Convention, John Bell, um, um, David Bohm. Very famously, a young physicist went to John Bell and said, I want to confirm with you uh, if the experimental setup I have in mind will confirm your theory. Uh, Am I setting it up right or am I missing something? Because tricky things can happen. You know, you can, oh, you know, your your experiment isn't right because there was a back door through which the electron got the information of what you were doing. So how do you assure about that? And John Bell's response was, do you have tenure? Because <laughs> if you don't have tenure, you better stay away from this. Because if, if you get in today, every every you know quantum physicist is doing this. 
But in the 1960s, and I was around in the 60s, I was reading this stuff. I was following this stuff. I was into John Bell. I was having arguments with the physics professor at my university about this stuff. Uh, but if you're a physicist, you couldn't talk about it. Now, what makes us think that science today, um, in 20 years, 50 years, you know, they won't think something very different. And in fact, something I like to talk about, Peter Thiel likes to ask the question, uh, for example, so Peter Thiel's one of the founders of um, PayPal. And when they sold PayPal, he put a couple hundred million dollars in his pocket and he became a uh, became a venture capitalist and he backed he backed Facebook, he backed um, Elon Musk's uh, you know, um, Tesla and SpaceX. So he's rich. And what venture and he's a controversial figure because he backed a Donald Trump, but he's gay and got gay had a gay marriage. So what are we supposed to think? <laughs> anyway, um, he all day, you know, if you ever watch Shark Tank, that's what these guys do. All day, people come in, they get 20 minutes to make their pitch. And, uh, you know, maybe one in, I don't know, 100 are worth looking into further and one in a hundred of those, they actually back the venture capitalists. So one of the questions Peter Thiel likes to ask, whether when he's teaching or during these uh, venture capitalist pitches is, what do you believe that almost nobody else believes? Well, we all believe, you know, in this and we all believe in that. Well, yeah, but what do you believe that well, should I even say it? Because uh, you can get into trouble. You know, I'm careful what I say in my university. Anyway, uh, the intellectual dark web is about people who believe stuff that almost nobody else believes. Uh, so some of the figures are... Uh, maybe we'll talk more about these in a future show. David Rubin, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein. So let me just find um, uh, So yeah, uh, Ben Shapiro's interesting character. Um, he's called a conservative. I think he's very reasonable in a lot of his beliefs, but he's a he's an observant Jew. He believes the stuff in the Old Testament is true. <laughs> uh, what, what, how do you uh, what does that mean? How do you deal with that? Well, um, th I think it gets interesting. Uh, and uh, oh, actually, I had a colleague in architecture. Uh, an architecture colleague who used to hang out with interesting guy, and then he uh, he he was born Jewish, but he didn't pay any attention to it. He became observant, and uh, he says, I, "I can't come over to your house. I can't eat your food." Said, what? So uh, anyway, 
Weinstein brothers. Eric Ross Weinstein is um, uh, writes on investment, capitalism, science, and mathematics. He's into some weird mathematical theory, and he's managing managing director of Peter Thiel's investment firm. And then his brother, Brett Weinstein, is a biologist, evolutionary theorist, and public intellectual and podcast guest. (laughs) Podcast guest. Well, Weinstein was at Evergreen State College. And I won't go into the details, but they had um, uh, an annual event to observe certain racial issues, and someone wanted to change the event. He took exception. He had to leave the university. Um, So that's the world we live in, and the dark, the intellectual dark web is where people who (laughs) have stepped in it, (laughs) you know, Totally reasonable intellectuals working within their traditions, but somehow they're led to uh, a conclusion that's not what you're supposed to be thinking. And they all tend to hang out at uh, Dave Rubin's show. So Dave Rubin has an online podcast interview, and it's huge. These these things are now a lot of these podcasts are bigger than cable TV, and he'll um, actually what's his name um, Jordan Peterson says I think I think YouTube is going to overthrow cable TV. In other words. Cable TV is a couple of channels. Um, there's most of them have the same point of view. Uh, one of them has a slightly different point of view, but and everybody's trying to shut it down. Um, and whatever the point of view, um, they're mostly about politics, which who cares? You know, it's just you get this stuff gets dreary after a while. And so um, here's a whole other outlet where people can express really interesting positions. I'm involved with the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and we're hoping to get some of his tapes uh, onto YouTube. Um, There's some little excerpts, but there's whole lecture series. I think they'd attract hundreds of thousands of viewers. Um, And these people have... So highly recommended. Go check into them. And uh, so let's wind up. And this is John LaBelle. And you've been listening to Visionaries. We're here every Monday, 10 a.m. New York time. you got to figure out what time your time on the Progressive Radio Network. See you next week. <laughs>